Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is David Rees, who joins me to discuss his book, The Beatles, 1963, A Year in the Life. At the start of 1963, the Beatles were a successful local Liverpool band with one hit single, and in 12 months, two albums, and the arrival of Beatlemania later, they were on the cusp of world domination. How did they get here? Daffy's book combines over 250 fan interviews and his meticulous research to paint a full and fascinating picture of another crazy Beatle year. Daffy Reese, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much indeed, Joe. We are here to talk about your marvellous, weighty tome that is The Beatles 1963, A Year in the Life. I've been lost in this book for the last month or so and it's an incredibly pleasurable place to be lost in so uh, thank you so much for joining me um an obvious first question I suppose any Beatle year is worthy of documenting uh what was it that attracted you to write about 1963? Their meteoric rise I suppose beginning of the year you know on January the 1st they came back from Hamburg terrible winter went up to Scotland where one gig, 20 people showed up, apparently. And then by the end of the year, they were seven weeks away from being on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I think that even in this day and age of social media where people rise quickly, I don't think anyone would ever achieve that again. And I, and it's interesting that Revolver is number two in the US album chart behind Taylor Swift, and you just go, wow. We should explain that the book is kind of made up of two halves there is half of your research and the other half is of first-hand accounts of people that saw the Beatles on the tours had some kind of encounter with the Beatles over the course of that year so I think it might be interesting if we talk a little bit about the the research what made you first of all what made you want to structure the book in that way of the of these kind of two counter-running narratives I'm not sure I can answer that I just came up with the idea of doing it that way. Uh, uh, Martin Creasy did a, a really good book about a decade ago, which was the Beatles tours, 63 to 65. And he integrated the interview parts in the text. And I just decided, I just thought, you know, the, the, the text that I wrote was clearly about what they were doing day by day through that year. And I felt keeping the story separate because they're so unrelated to what I was writing. It made it much clearer. So, you know, I start out and say, this is what they did. And then someone says, I met them and, and I had some encounter with them. I'm surprised how well it worked and how many people say, what a great idea that it just works well by separating the two. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know why I came up with it. I just did. <laughs> So how did you, first of all, let's talk a bit about the research side of things. So this this real painstaking detail that you cover each day of 1963, tell us a bit about how you went, you kind of started researching. Well, you obviously turned to Mark Lewison straight away. I went through what he had written at that time, which was the recording sessions and the, the Chronicle. And even he would admit when he when he wrote it, which was almost pre-internet days, there are errors in there because he found things that he could find and then discovered later they were not correct. So I started with him. 
and I just logged every single day through that something happened. And then I went searching and with the internet today, you can find most things. I actually live in the United States and I decided about halfway through the project, I needed to come to England to find more because there were mysteries I could not solve through the internet. So I think I did three, I think I had three visits of two months at a time, which has been great because I've seen more of the United Kingdom than most people living in the UK. So I retraced the Scotland trip and found out a couple of things there that totally threw off what people had thought. Uh, I went to all the seaside resorts where they played in the summer. I went to the Midlands where they did a lot of gigs. Some of these venues aren't there anymore, but I went to most of the venues that are still there and just found people and interviewed people. Really, that's how it was assembled, just through research on the internet and then going to the places themselves. And the interview side of things, um, what kind of method did you take up to find all these people? Then you know, there's, there's hundreds of people in the book that had these experiences with the Beatles. How did you go about finding these people? I started out by writing to all the local newspapers throughout the UK where they had played a gig in 63 and asked them to put in a letter in saying, if you saw the Beatles, would you get in touch with me? So I started getting responses. And then I realized that email responses probably were not as good as the telephone conversation. So a friend of mine I work with by the name of Jan Gammy, I work with at Decca and at Record Business. I called her up and said, would you like to talk to people on the phone and ask them about their experience of the Beatles? And she said, yeah, I'll do that. So that changed everything because the moment she could converse with them she could get more out of them than I could out of an email. I mean, from an email, they just send you the story and that's what you're stuck with. Mm. Whereas if you talk to someone, as the conversation develops, it pulls more out of them. So I have to thank her. Probably, I think there are 294 interviews in the book. I'm guessing she probably did 250 of them. I think it's good to look at maybe the the chronological side of things and talk a little bit more about, about the year as a whole. So you mentioned at the start of our conversation there that the Beatles start the year in one of the worst winters that the United Kingdom has ever suffered. Um, and they start in this pretty sparsely attended in part Scottish tour. Did you get a sense from looking at the, the research around that time of, of kind of where the Beatles were? How, how well known were they across the UK or were they still just a, a Liverpool thing at the start of 63? Well, when they came back on January the 1st, they were, Love Me Do was like number 17 in the record retailer, record mirror chart. It never got in the top 20 in Melody Maker, Enemy and Disc. So we're talking about a group who just had a hit record, wasn't a top 10 hit record. So outside of Liverpool, outside the Northwest, they were, they were pretty well known outside of Liverpool in that area, but outside of the Northwest. They were unheard. I mean, other than Love Me Do. So, so everyone knew Love Me Do, but they didn't associate it with the Beatles in that sense. It was just, oh, there's a group from Liverpool who've got this single that I like. But no one had attached it necessarily to the Beatles themselves. So they really weren't known. And even, I mean, that winter went through until about March with snow everywhere. So there were gigs that... You know, really from, from when they came back from Scotland through to 
I would say late March, they, they were still gigging local in the, that that area. They'd gone up, to, they'd gone to Newcastle and places like that, and then the tour with Helen Shapiro had started. I think it was March the second, March the third. The first gig down south was Chatham. That was the very first one um, of that year. So it did take a while, and then when Please Please Me came along, that record really people were saying, "Okay, who are these people?" So I think that's where it took off. And then because Brian Epstein had booked them into so many gigs, I think it I think it was St Helens in April, beginning of April, I think, was the first gig where they got a hundred quid. Right. All the gigs prior to that, they were like fifty quid, seventy five, thirty five. I mean, nothing. So. It was that struggle of driving here, there, and everywhere in the Ford van all those months. And it was a struggle. They did a Thank You Lucky Stars in uh, late January. But it was really, they were a gigging band that were just driving around the country, playing gigs wherever they could get a booking. And and even with a hit record or two, it, it didn't make that much difference. Uh, I mean, not it didn't happen with the Beatles, but I do know there were the way things were booked it wasn't unknown for a band to play in Portsmouth and the next night play in Newcastle and the next night play in Southampton you just go <laughs> couldn't you do Portsmouth and Southampton the consecutive nights and then do Newcastle didn't work that way mm. so it, it was it was really pretty basic in those first three months how did they get received in Scotland well the first gig was cancelled completely because they couldn't get there and then they went to, I mean, the rundown was they did uh, the two red shoes. You have conflicting stories there. For example, Ringo in Anthology said that it was terrible and they had to escape. They, they had to run out and jump in their car and drive off. Only problem was they didn't have their cars with them then. So I don't know where he gets that story from. I've spoken to someone that was there and said, no, no, they were well received. They were, they were not, they, they, there was a gig where, the story goes they had coins thrown at them. That doesn't seem to be the case. Dingwalls was the gig where no one, virtually no one showed up because a few miles down the road, there was a local band playing and a thousand people turned up to see them, but only 20 showed up to see the Beatles. They played the Beach Ballroom in Aberdeen, which is still there. And that went really well and a, a full house. Uh, and they played down the Bridge of Allen as well, which was pretty good. So. I think there's this myth has been created about how disastrous Scotland was. It wasn't that bad. Other than not many people showing up in Dingwall at the town hall, I think it was okay. There is an interesting story, and there's a guy, and I didn't mention him in the book deliberately because I didn't want to even give him a name credit. He claims to have been involved with the promoter behind that short tour, and he is on tape saying when they played Bridge of Allen, he was upstairs with, a, with somebody else and said, the moment I heard them play, please, please me, from me to you and she loves you in order, I thought they're going to make it. And I'm going, from me to you and she loves you hadn't been written by then. So don't think that's very true. But, that, but maybe that's just memory. I mean, one of the problems I had with the book, I've had to leave out things that I know are wrong. For example, they played a gig in Sheffield. So this is all to do with um, Stringfellow, who's no longer with us. So he was a promoter with his brother up in Sheffield at the time. He booked them for the Black Cat in February and he oversold it. So he thought 
okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to postpone it and go to a larger venue. So he booked a place called the Azena Ballroom, which happened in April. There is a poster which mentions February Azena Ballroom, please please be number one with the Beatles logo. The Beatles logo, logo had not been designed by then. The day that they picked, I think I can't remember the date, it was something like Tuesday, February the 12th, they had down as Saturday, February the 12th. And please please me hadn't got number one. So this poster, which I know has sold for like $3,000 online, is a total fraud, a complete fraud. It was done after the event, but it's still wrong. But the person that gave us the story about the Zinabora, who saw them, she is insistent it was February because it was on her birthday. And I think what happened was that she was given a ticket to go and see them at the Black Cat in February on her birthday. And then she's forgotten that it was postponed and held at the Azena two months later. So she's definitely wrong, but she doesn't recall it that way. Wow. So you get a lot of that, where people's memories do fade or they just, I mean, somebody else told me they saw them, I think they saw them in Cardiff in 63 with Tom Jones and Herman's Hermits on the bill. I'm going, no, that did not happen. So you get, you get a fair amount of that, but it's understandable. Mm. I had to be really careful. I would like to think that anything I came up with, I checked and double checked. And there's a section at the back of the book called discrepancies, myths and mistakes, which I put in so that if I do have things wrong, I'm covered. And also I've made it plain that there's a story that Tony Bramble wrote in his autobiography about John Lennon almost crashing their van at the Hogs Back in North Wales. So I thought, okay, I've got to track this down. So I looked at the map to see how they would have been traveling on that road. And I looked in 61, 62, and I knew that it couldn't be after the summer of 63 because they never drove in the van again. They always had the chauffeur-driven car. So I looked at every single gig that they could possibly have done that would take them on that road. And the only one I came up with was 63, when they went from Clandidno down to the south coast to, to continue the summer gigs. And so I thought, okay, okay, it must be that date, but I need more. Then further research, I discovered that Paul, George and Ringo had all had their cars when they were playing in Bournemouth. I know that because Ringo scalded his hand opening up the radiator cap on his way back from Bournemouth to London at the end of the week. And there's a photograph taken on the Monday and his hand is bandaged. Paul went to see his cousin, uh, Bet Robbins, Mike and Bet Robbins, with his dad at uh, Pontins in Bracklesham Bay. So he had the car. And there's a clear reference while they were down in Bournemouth that George pranged his car trying to get away from fans. So I know they all had cars. So the question is, if they were in Clandidno on the Saturday night, how did they get their cars? So obviously Neil Aspinall drove them back to Liverpool after the Clandidno gig. They all went down on their own in their cars, leaving John on his own. He didn't have a driving license. And I guess the only three people that were in the van were Neil Aspinall, Tony Brownwell and John. And when John said, oh, I'm going to drive the van, they couldn't say no to him. So it must be that date. But I have made the point at the back, we cannot for definite proof that is the date, but it has to be. So there are things like that. There's also a famous one they, they had, they did a photo session in a swimming pool at the University of London, and there's never been a date attached to that. And I found the photographer that took the photos. And from his recollection, what he said, 
he remembered things about the weather and stuff like that. And he gave them the lift to the airport afterwards. So I worked out what that date was, which was, it was the day after they recorded Please Please Me. So wow. believe it or not, I said, Please Please Me, they went down nine o'clock in the morning, did a photo session, flew up to Liverpool and then did a gig in Oldham that night. And it, again, it has to be that date. But if someone wants to come out and say, you're wrong, please tell me because I, I don't want it to be wrong, but I, I can see there's no other proof. And, you know, for example, when the photo session was done, Ringo didn't have a Beatle haircut. We know when he had the haircut that horns in Liverpool. So it's, it's joining dots up and hopefully coming to the right conclusion. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. So you mentioned earlier the, the tours that the Beatles take after the Scotland tour is the, the tours with Helen Shapiro and with uh, Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe. The popular idea here on these tours is that the Beatles were already hugely popular and it was embarrassing for Shapiro and for Montez and Rowe that the crowd were, as George says in the anthology, only there to see the Beatles. Um, from the research that you took and the, and the gig kind of reports and reviews and stuff, would you say that that, that was accurate? Partially. Certainly some of the people who've told us their stories went to see Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez, not the Beatles. Uh, I spoke with Jim Lee, who was Chris Montez's manager and wrote Let's Dance, and he came over on the tour, and so his story's in the book. And he, there's this story about, because the Beatles are so popular, that they should top the bill and you know, push Chris, Chris Montez down. And Jim Lee said that was absolute nonsense. He said if that had ever been approached, we would have been back on the plane back to America immediately. He said that that never happened. Uh, I do know that when they played Liverpool, the Beatles did top the bill on that occasion. And with Helen Shapiro, they moved up the bill. And there's a story, I think it's Kenny Lynch. <laughs> Kenny Lynch said that the promoter, I think Arthur House was the promoter, he said, I'll give you extra money to someone that will we'll go on before the Beatles or something like that. And Kenny said, well, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they certainly moved up the bill during that run. And I do, I do believe, I think on one occasion they did top the bill because the manager, I think they did, they, it was where they did two shows a night. And I think the manager, I think it was in Nottingham, someone like Mansfield, someone like that. And he said, um, he said, look, could, uh, do you think the Beatles could top the bill at the second house? Because that's what the fans have come from. So I, th I think it's, it's probably true for Helen Shapiro that yes, but there was still, there was still this aura about an American artist coming to England to perform. So I think Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez, had a little bit of that going for them. But by the same token, there were quite a few people, because Chris Montez would take his shirt off during his act. And people would say it was just so gross and unpleasant to these rather overweight young man poncing about on stage. And so, yeah, there were, I think, I think the people that even went to see Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez came away thinking, thank goodness I saw the Beatles. Let's put it that way. As we said earlier, the book is full of these personal encounters that people have with the Beatles, some very brief and, and some a fair bit longer. Having obviously looked at all of these encounters yourself, did you get a sense for how each Beatle responded to their growing fame through 63? Did you get a sense of whether or not it was all still kind of fun for them at this point? I think it was. There's a clear demarcation of the four. John was still being as obstreperous as he possibly could to so many people. I mean, a lot of people 
have said you know, he wasn't a nice man, but I think that was just John showing his edge and, and it was a front he put on. Ringo seemed to spend the whole of the year telling journalists that when it all came to an end, he was going to open up a hairdressing salon. Probably <laughs> the amount of times he said that. And I made the point that I've mentioned it every single time that I came across it because I just think it gets funnier and funnier as, as they get bigger and great. I'm still going to do a hairdressing salon. George probably was the most diligent about reaching out to fans. And Paul was all business. It's like, you know, let's get this organized. Let's get this on the road. Let's do, you know, he, he was the guy really that made, that, that drove the engine. So they're all a lot different. But I, I would certainly think that George was the, the one that was the most, that he reached out the most. My favorite story in the book is written by someone called Lily Ferrari. She f was living in, in Norfolk and she had, she'd moved there about a month after they played there. So she missed them. And one day she discovered there was a, a girl at school who was selling the Beatles addresses for a shilling to whoever. So she got George's address, wrote to George, got a letter back from George's mother. And George's mother said, are you related to, and I can't remember the mother's name, but her name was Ferrari. And she had, was writing romance novels and George's mum read them all. So they had this ongoing letter writing relationship for years. And it's a really sweet, sweet story. How she never, and, and then when Apple, the Apple shop was on Baker Street, she was in there once and George was there. And, and she thought, shall I go up and say, I used to write to your mum and she never did. And it's a really lovely story. And, and you get that wonderful sense of innocence of teens back then. There was no cynicism, no nothing. I mean, one of the things I, I, I do want to point out you know, if I was asked the reason, you know, what's the purpose of the book, really? You know, it's a trip down memory lane for people who are old enough. But I really want to show younger people how different life was. If you said to someone, a lot of people didn't have telephones in their house. You know, they had to go down to the end of the road to the phone booth to make a phone call. There were no credit cards. A lot of people didn't have cameras. And if they did, it was a box brownie and that was it. So the reason that not all the people in the book have their photographs in their stories is because there are no photographs of them taken in 1963. So I think that's important to get across to younger people how different life was. I mean, back then, if you wanted to go and see the Beatles, certainly when they were doing tours in the latter part of the year, you're, you had two choices, a postal order, which you sent off and got the ticket back in the mail, or you had to queue outside the venue. And, you know, reading the book, you'll see that certainly in the latter part of the year, people, and not just girls, boys as well, would spend a week on a pavement outside the venue waiting for the box office to open. So we mentioned the, the four Beatles there through the year. What about Brian? Did Brian appear much in newspaper reports? How well known was he over the course of the year? Was he almost as famous as the Beatles themselves? No, I mean, he was still... I think he was somewhat overwhelmed. You think about, you know, there was the London Palladium, there was the Rockamon performance, there was a tour to Sweden. You know, this is an area he had never been into. I mean, he had no clue. I mean, in 1962, he was just booking them into 35 to 50 pound gigs in the Northwest. Getting the contract with EMI had turned out to be a major ordeal. I mean, a real slog to get to that point. So I think he was at that particular point just trying to make it all happen. He didn't actually, there was no NEMS office down in London until 
later on in the year. I don't think he had, he moved his first place in London, I think was February 64. He actually didn't, he was still living up in Liverpool. So certainly that people were interested in who is the man behind the Beatles to a degree, but certainly was nowhere near as famous as he you know, became later on. We were in an era where people didn't realize that, you know, session musicians played on records, all this kind of stuff. So I don't think even George Martin was particularly well known at that point. You know, he, oh, he's the guy that produced the records and people, I mean, you know, at that time in 63, really, I would say the only famous record producer was Phil Spector. George Martin should have been as famous as Phil Spector, but I'm not sure he was, even though he was producing, you know, producing Gary Pacemakers, Scylla, Billy Jack, all, all of them. He didn't come to the fore as much as he should have done in 63, I think. One of my favourite parts of the book is a story which is, is probably well known amongst listeners to this podcast, but maybe not as well known amongst the kind of general audience is this story that George Harrison halfway through the year goes to America and becomes the first Beatle to set foot in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about about this this trip, why he goes over and what happens while he's there? Well, his sister Louise, who was quite a bit older than him, had emigrated there I think in 1953. So he would have been 10. And so George and his brother Peter decided, well, it's probably George that decided he had a break from the from the tour in September and he hadn't seen her for a while. And he thought this was his first opportunity to go to America. And obviously, you know, that's their musical influences were from the States. You know, even guitars and things like that were from America. So he, Peter flew to um, New York and then went down to St. Louis, was picked up by his sister and her husband. And then they went and spent 10 days with the sister and she drove him around everywhere. And he gigged with uh, the four vests. And, and there's the story that um, someone came up to one of the guys in the band and said, you should hire him. <laughs> Which I just love, you know. So obviously... They, they probably didn't even realise until February. It's, my God, it's the guy that played with the three vests back in September, four vests. And then Louise had taken copies of the singles, the English singles, not the, I think, so she had the English singles sent to her. So she took the English singles, not the American singles, into this local radio, radio station. And it was co-owned by this guy who gave his teenage daughter the Saturday morning slot. And so when George showed up, Louise decided to take them to the radio, take him to the radio station to meet the DJ that she'd given the records to. And when they got there, she'd already left like 10 minutes beforehand. So someone phoned her up and said, you've got to come back here. So she came back. So her story is in there uh, about how she met the Beatles. And, and I'm trying to remember, there was a really good book, probably not even published in the UK, specifically about the, the visit. And he mentions the person's name. And... I can't remember how I tracked her down, but she's a she's a real estate agent, and uh, her story's terrific. So he he went to see. Uh, the, oh, there's one bit. They went to a drive. He'd never been to a drive-in movie, so Louise and Peter, the three of them, went to a drive-in movie, and the support movie was Summer Holiday, but it was called something else. And they're sitting there, and George leans over to Louise and says, "I met him." Right. <laughs> oh, it's just that. Again, this wonderful innocence that George could wander around all these towns 
you know, and no one had a clue who he was. Went into he went into a record store and bought up a bunch of albums. He he that was where he bought the album that had got my mindset on you. Wow, Jane Three, I think. So he bought that, but he went into a guitar shop and played around, and he went with a couple of the musicians from the Four Vests, and they just had a jam in the record shop, in the in the music shop. I, I just think well, that's wonderful. It's just this wonderful innocence before the mayhem really started. Yeah. What were the other three doing while he was in the States? Paul and Ringo went to Greece, and one night they were staying in a hotel, and they vol- they wanted to, they volunteered to play, and the manager wouldn't let them. Um, and then John went to Paris with Cynthia, where they met up with Astrid, purely by chance. And he came back early because he, I think he missed playing his guitar. And again, that was a, believe it or not. So there was a real mystery about, we know the date George went to the States and we know the date when Paul and Ringo head off to, to Greece. And I think they went to Corfu. They went to other, not just Greece, I'm not sure. But with John, it was really difficult to work out when did he leave and when did he come back? Because if he came back early, when did he come back early? So I went to Colin Hall, who lives at Love Avenue, I believe. He's the corner curator there. And I didn't meet with him, but I did. I had contact with him. And I said, do you have John's passport? And he said, yes. So I said, could you tell me when it was stamped in 1963 in September? And so from that, I determined the day that John came back because it's stamped on the passport. Wonderful. As we we head into the the latter part of the year, so after the, the four of them have their their holidays, and we go into October and November, that's when it really starts to explode. As again, as most listeners will will know, and we get things like Sunday night at the, the London Palladium, alas, lost visually anyway, to the archive uh, and Royal Variety Show in November. Was there a particular moment, did you did you notice in the press coverage from this winter period when the fame really escalated? Was there, was there a, a particular point when it started to become something entirely new? Well, the tour started November 1st in Cheltenham and that was when they were top of the bill. And I think by this point, People had seen them with Helen Shapiro and people had seen them with Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez. But this was the time where everybody wanted to see them. So I think the moment the tour was announced, it all got a bit crazy. They had done Ready, Steady, Go in October um, as well. So I think really when they came back middle, middle late September, I think from that point on, it, that was, it, just was, it just went crazy from, you know, from zero to 100. I don't think you can pinpoint any particular, I mean, it had built up, you know, they'd been doing the, the radio show, so that obviously helped. Although there were people who complained, I, I mean, again, one or two storytellers com- said they wrote to the BBC complained because the time the show was on, they hadn't gone back from school. And what's the point? Because this, surely the show was aimed at school kids. But anyway, So th- that had happened. All the summer, um, week-long shows in the summer, it, it had just, it had been building up. But I think it was the announcement that they were going to do this major, which was what, six-week tour, and then the Christmas show in Finsbury Park, which ran into January. So that whole period. And then also, you know, it's like even, you know, it's still 
true today, how the press jumps on something and just goes completely over the top with it. So you had doc, you know, documentaries appearing, you had people going up to Liverpool saying, what is all this going on, all this kind of stuff. So I think it, was, it, it had been boiling up throughout the summer. And then, you know, the moment the tour was announced, that was it. I mean, that was just it. And TV, as I said, the Palladium show and the Raw Variety, would you say that had a, a big reach or do you think that's been a little oh, bit over-egged? No, absolutely. Uh, again, this is a thing that, this is not in discrepancy of myths and mistakes because I proved it to be wrong. It's always been said that the Daily Mirror coined the term Beatlemania the day after the World Conference. Absolutely not true. There was an article in The Observer, I think two Sundays before, where the guy had used the word Beatlemania. So the day after the Royal Variety, you know, they were front page news. And then remember, they'd also, they'd had that short tour of Sweden where London Airport had been, I, I mean, again, it's interesting. If you read the press at the time, the, pe the amount of people that were there to welcome them back from Sweden were anywhere between 2,000 and 20,000. I mean, <laughs> who knows what the figure is? I think the Telegraph had 2,000 and the Mirror probably had 20, something like that. More conservative papers had a lower number. So you, and of course, that was when Ed Sullivan first encountered them. Although his booker had been in negotiations and talked with Epstein that summer, uh, or been made aware of them, it was, it was when he came over with his wife on his annual holiday that he realized something was going on. And on that same day they came back, all the Miss World contestants were there and everyone ignored them. And Sir Alec Douglas Hume, who was about to be prime minister, but he had to fly up to his constituency in Scotland. And they told him that he'd have to wait because of the Beatles. I mean, that's a big deal. You're right. I mean, ready, set, go, obviously, because that was a you know, Friday, the weekend starts here. Fridays was everyone watched that. So when they were on, and that show had been on for a few months. So for the Beatles to have taken that long to be on it, I think that built up as well. Mm. Um, so you've got that and, and obviously the Palladium and Royal Command coming back from Sweden at the airport, all those things just, and, and the press just really worked on it and just covered it as much as they possibly could. In a way that, I mean, I suppose the only other time that it had ever happened was when Rock and Roll and Bill Haley and mayhem in cinemas when Rock Around the Clock was shown, it was the only time prior to the Beatles that the national press had, had really got hold of this. It went crazy. It certainly did. You must have kind of started writing the book with a fair knowledge of what happened in, in 63. Was there something that really stood out that surprised you the most over the course of writing it? I suppose it's the realisation that everyone was going crazy about them. You know, you live in your own world and you think, oh, I love this group, they're fantastic. But you have no idea how others feel, whether others feel the same way to that degree. And although I never saw them live in 63 or any other time, I will always remember, I used to read The Enemy. That was initially I was an enemy reader. And I always used to remember I was at boarding school in 63. And on Fridays, I was, I was at a choir school and on Fridays we would have games and then we'd have tea and then we have like a 10 minute break before we had choir practice for even song at 5.30. And I always ran out of the precinct down to WH Smith, which is still there, get my enemy, run back. And I always turn to page five, which is where the top 30 was. And I'll always remember 
seeing Please Please Be at number 17. And then it was number five. And that, you know, so so those kind of memories, and you, you always turn there to see, you know. So seeing Please Please Be at 17 was like, oh, wow. But I didn't get to hear music in the way that a lot of kids did. I don't think, I didn't have a radio that I could listen to at night, listen to Radio Luxembourg. Didn't have much chance to listen to the light program. I mean, I think I listened to Pop, Pick of the Pops on Sundays. But that was about it. So I got all of my information from the enemy and then disc later on. But to read how the some of these people got to see them and how important it was to them that they did get to see them was something I never experienced. And certainly people in Liverpool, there's, there's a guy in, who saw them. He said, you know, if you didn't see the Beatles at the cabin in 61, you didn't see the Beatles. Mm. I wouldn't say he's derogatory towards what they were like in 63 he's basically making the point that if you want to see the true Beatles it was when they were performing at the cabin in 61 and when the fame came along and they went mainstream you lost that part of the Beatles yeah I, I suppose it was just for me it was just going back to those days and remembering things that I had kind of forgotten about I didn't see the rock I didn't see the rock Bartles, I didn't see Palladium I didn't, I didn't have access to a television so I never saw any of these things at the time it was all about reading them in the paper and just waiting for the next single. At the end of the year, as we about to barrel ourselves into 1964, which we know is a, a, a equally seismic year for the Beatles, what kind of position are they in? Where are they at the end of 63? Uh, what's changed the most for them over the course of that year? Well, you know, Please Please Me, went to the album went to number one, took a while to get to number one, and it was replaced by With The Beatles. So from the time Please Please went to number one, they were number one. They were actually number one for 50, 53 weeks consecutive. Um, and then we'd had Please Please Be was number one, despite the fact that Guinness hit singles says it wasn't. One little gripe on this, the BBC covers the official chart, whatever it's been from whether it's Gallup, whoever it is now. In the 90, early 1960s, before there was an official chart, the BBC chart on to pick of the pops combined the four pop newspapers enemy disc record mirror and they would do a points system so if you were number one yeah number one got 20 points number 20 got one point and they would add them up and whoever got the most points was number one on that principle please please me was a number one record as it was in all the charts except record retailer so in the 1960 in 1963 please please me was number one right when the Guinness hit singles came along in the mid-70s, they chose as their chart the record retailer chart because partly because it was a top 50, not a top 30, and because it had evolved into the official chart. So when they published their book, Please Please Me got to number two. So the Beatles' number one album doesn't have Please Please Me in it. Mm. So Please Please Me, let's put this to rest. Please Please Me was number one. Okay. <laughs> so you had Please Please Me from me to you. She loves you. I want to hold you. Four number ones in a row. You had how many EPs? I can't remember. Four EPs that year. In the enemy chart with the Beatles for the highest selling, it, it, I think it got to number 11, the 11 in the singles chart, beating Frank Sinatra, who got to number 12 a few years earlier. All four EPs were, I think all of four of them made top 10. I, I, so they'd sold a lot of records. And, you know, and, and there's some comment from Paul about they, they got a royalty check and he just couldn't believe how much it was. So they were certainly in the money for the first time in their lives. 
they knew they were going to be going to America in February. They didn't know how they were going to, you know, what the reaction would be. They'd been booked into Paris Olympia for a week there in January. So obviously they didn't know. I think, I think the Australian tour was already booked in place for that year. So they obviously knew they were going to be traveling a lot further than they had in, the, in 63. Yeah. So, so Sweden was the first time, other than Hamburg, you know, going to Germany earlier. Sweden was the first time they'd been out in the country to, to perform. So I think they, they kind of knew that 64 was probably going to be more chaotic than 63. And they were, would absolutely be right. What a fascinating way of looking at this year. It, it's such an enjoyable book. Just, just to conclude, how do, you, how do you feel about the, the book now? Are you pleased with, with how it turned out? Yes, uh, there, are some, there are some photographs that were taken of that during that year that I have been absolutely unable to pin a date on, which does drive me mad. Mark Lewison very kindly, very graciously invited me into his home to let me look through his files for 63 and take pull anything from that. But I was on the verge of giving up because I was just, I cannot find out these final pieces. And he said, don't worry about it. There's, there's always going to be stuff that we'll never know. Mm. So I, I was kind of disappointed with that, that I, I couldn't pin certain things down that I would like to have pinned down. The original manuscript was close to 500,000 words. It's now... I think it's 315,000. And for any of your listeners, if you go to Substack, there's a Beatles Substack page. Um, we have been putting up two days from each month to promote the book before it came out. We've decided to keep that going indefinitely, but with the, the expanded versions of the stories. So do the math on that. If, if the book's got almost 200,000 more words, I've got 200,000 more words, that's spread over pretty evenly so there's some uh, some of the story the, the guy who engineered please please me his story was a lot longer so i am going to put that one up in february because it's it's really great because it's very very long and some of it goes off nothing to do with the beatles at all but i mean that's the other thing some of the storytellers it's not just about their encounter with the beatles it's about them mm. and about where life took them and uh, i mean there was one guy who it's been so i mean i finished the book about three years ago covid put it on hold. So I think it was Nottingham or Mansfield, someone like that. He had drawn some cartoons of the Beatles and he told he was told he was going to meet with them backstage and it never happened, but they, they did get the cartoons. I found him living in Hong Kong, I believe. And what was most interesting about him was that he designed Slade's costumes in the 1970s. Where did that come from? You know, so, so there's that kind of thing where somebody... Uh, I mean, another guy uh, who was in a band that opened for them in Croydon, he went on to produce Darling Buds of May. He very proudly states that he, along with John, Paul and George, has an, an Ivor Novello Award for a song because <laughs> he wrote the theme tune to it. So you've got these people that have, you know, have gone off it to, to lead another life after this and have, have other stories to tell. So... Some of those have been abbreviated in the book, but but if you yes, if you go to just go to Substack and Keen Beatles, you should find it and two new ver and and if you subscribe to it, they will send you the two for each month on the day that in, in question. And my publisher Omnibus, who I can't thank enough, they were the ones that said you can't do a five hundred thousand page book, and they were right. They, they, you know, it would have been unmanageable. It just would have been too much. So I think that they've got it absolutely right. 
about the, the length is now, I mean, it's still 520 something pages. That's still pretty bulky. So they were absolutely right. And I was wrong. <laughs> All that's left now really definitely is to say thanks so much for your time. Um, it's been really, really interesting talking to you. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Joe. Thank you so much.